Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted October 6, 2017, we consider a major report in the WPJ Fall issue about a surprisingly feminist new approach by the Pakistani Taliban and ISIS to recruit female followers. We'll also spotlight other top features in that new issue. But first, some timely insights from Global Affairs analyst and author Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants, and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Thanks, David. Between Puerto Rican hurricane damage visits, a controversy over NFL players taking a knee during the national anthem, and the lunatic killing spree in Las Vegas last weekend, President Donald Trump hasn't spared much time for Pakistan lately. But his Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, spoke up at an October 3 congressional hearing to confirm that neither the coddling of the Afghan Taliban, nor ties to violent terrorist groups, nor nuclear proliferation will keep U.S. military aid from completing its appointed rounds in Pakistan. It was 30 years ago, last month, September 1987, when Congress, acting on evidence that Pakistan was trying to build a nuclear weapon, suspended billions of dollars in military and economic aid to the country. The so-called Solars Amendment, named for the Brooklyn Democrat who championed it, remained largely in effect until the 9-11 attacks, when military expediency forced the U.S. back into bed with what by then was a country armed with nuclear weapons, regularly infiltrating terrorists into India to mount attacks, and acting as the principal ally of the Taliban regime that hosted Osama bin Laden. Now, Pakistan is a huge country with a sophisticated middle class, great universities, friendly people, and some economic potential should it ever get past its corrupt politics and shake off religious dogma. Carlotta Gall, a New York Times journalist who has devoted her life to covering Pakistan, has chronicled the decades-long multi-billion dollar flim-flam of the United States. In her book, The Wrong Enemy, I produced a documentary on Pakistan in 2012, and it highlights these many contradictions too. But modern Pakistan is a friend of China's and no friend of ours. It is a cynical manipulator of the worst kinds of Islamic terrorist groups when such crimes suit its purposes. At the same Senate Armed Services hearing where Mattis testified, the chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford, said, It's clear to me that the ISI, Pakistan's Inter-Services Intelligence Agency, has ties to terrorist groups. That's enough for me. It should be enough for the U.S. government, too. For World Policy On Air, this is Michael Moran. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. This award is not just for me. It is for those forgotten children who want education. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Perhaps the biggest mistake the Pakistani Taliban ever made was the near-fatal shooting of schoolgirl Malala Yousafzai for the crime, as they saw it, of seeking education. It made her a living martyr, a heroine to young women in Pakistan and beyond, and a 2014 recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, thanking her family for encouraging and supporting her non-traditional activism for learning and liberty. Of course, the Taliban continue their violence against those who oppose them and their fiercely radical form of Islam. 
but they've also embraced new modes of confrontation and communication, including their first women's magazine, Sunat Ikhola, that in its way also exploits youthful rebellion against traditional Muslim family life that the extremists initially vowed to defend. The magazine's message and impact are explored in World Policy Journal's fall issue, Constructing Family, by Rafia Zakaria, a columnist for Dawn, Pakistan's largest English-language newspaper. Her story is Terror and the Family, How Jihadist Groups Are Redefining the Role of Women, and we discussed it recently for this podcast. Rafia Zakaria, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Thank you so much, David, for having me. When, where, and with what circulation did the Taliban magazine first appear? Well, um, this magazine, Sunnate Khala, uh, is the first issue of um, the Taliban women's magazine, and it kind of came out somewhere in August. And, um, you know, it's difficult to tell, of course, uh, what the circulation is mostly because it's available on the internet, it's in English, um, and that's kind of become the general mode of dissemination, as we all know, of various jihadi propaganda materials. And so, um, yeah, it came out in August. Um, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of attention on it until it was picked up by one or two major news outlets, um, you know, and and then of course there was a there was a larger discussion, um, you know, as you mentioned yourself, uh, when I heard about it and then I you know found it and read it, um, I was very very shocked at. Some of the some of the material in this magazine, uh, mostly because of you know exactly what you said is that it is it goes so drastically against uh, what we saw of the Taliban when they first came into power, um, you know, and marched into Kabul in 1996. Does it exist in print as well as online? I mean, I assume there are texts, there are photographs, illustrations on paper or uh, online. Is it color? I mean, is it a, is it a kind of, we, would, would we recognize it as a woman's magazine, uh, whether in print or on- online? Um, well, I mean, it, it, it's a color magazine and uh, it's all in English. I'm, I would doubt that it, it's available um, in print, um, mostly because, um, you know, the Taliban, of course, on, in Pakistan, they are uh, a terrorist group. And in Afghanistan, um, I doubt, I mean, the target of, of this magazine, you know, essentially seems to be a kind of middle class English-speaking uh, audience that would mostly be found, you know, on the Internet, uh, whether it's people in Pakistan or anywhere else in the world that are reading um, the material. It's, um, it's an interesting format. Um, you know, as I mentioned in the article, uh, the, the, the name of the magazine itself, Sunnate Khola, takes after a figure from early Islamic history, um, and then there's like this sort of, um, and, and you see this in uh, the sort of materials that uh, jihadist groups are tailoring toward women, is that it's it's taking a familiar character or a familiar name from Islamic history and then using it to kind of create a genealogy 
for the female warrior. Um, now, we have seen this, of course, and discussed this uh, with the Islamic State, uh, or Daesh, as it's known in Pakistan um, and the rest of the Muslim world, but we hadn't really seen this with the Taliban, which, um, you know, relative to Daesh and Islamic State, um, had been more of kind of a, I hate to say it, but like an old-style uh, jihadist group that, uh, you know, uh, largely tailored its, well, not just largely, entirely tailored its material, its propaganda material to men. And to the extent that it was even interested in women, it was that, uh, it, you know, in, in the language of restrictions and constraints. Um, so, you know, I, when they marched into a city or a town, uh, they essentially hung up um, banners that said women were banned from the marketplace. They sent out uh, these night letters uh, that were stuck under people's doorsteps that's, that, you know, laid out similar restrictions that you can't let women leave the house without a male. Um, they have to be wearing a full burqa and all the rest of it. Um, you know, that was, that was kind of their interaction with women. So, of course, it's uh, sort of stunning to see this magazine, not only is it tailored to women, but, um, you know, as I, as I mentioned in the essay, uh, there's like this long first person account of a woman, uh, who is also, uh, she, you know, the name that's, uh, the byline is Dr. Hala Binte Abdulaziz. And, um, you know, I mean, who knows if that's actually a real name? I mean, of course, we cannot know any of that or even if it was really written by a woman. But it is a pretty, um, you know, in-depth account of uh, one woman's journey from an ordinary middle-class life in Pakistan um, to the West and then ultimately uh, to go and join the Taliban. Well, let's let's retrace it step by step. She's well educated, a doctor, in fact, uh, of a family with some uh, some stature. So, uh, tell us who she, who she is, where she came from, and then we'll follow through some of the steps of her journey. Yeah, I mean, um, the the Dr. Hola and and the uh, title of the article or the essay within the magazine is my journey. From ignorance to guidance, um, you know it features this woman. She's telling her story. It starts at an airport, at an airport somewhere in the West, in which she's talking about how alienated she feels, and uh, you know, and then it backtracks. She's from Lahore. Uh, she's born born into a military family uh, where her father, I believe, is is in the Pakistani army. So she's educated in the army's um, schools that they provide for the children of their officers. She's from a big city, from Lahore. Um, uh, and, and, you know, she, she goes to medical school in Lahore. Um, so you have kind of a, you know, a background that is very, you know, upper middle class. Um, and, and that also kind of directly positions uh, one of the Taliban's biggest, enemies uh, in Pakistan, which is the Pakistani army, um, as part of her internal conflict, you know, as, um, as she goes on in her journey. So, yeah, we have Hala. She talks about the fact that she had a very ordinary um, 
childhood. She was always ambitious. She um, and she was always taught. Um, you know, and I, I, th- I thought this was particularly interesting. She goes through quite um, a lot of uh, effort to show that you know she has spent most of her life, particularly her young life, uh, believing that the Taliban are a horrible terrorist barbaric group uh, that are marginal and that they have absolutely no relevance to her life at all. Um, And so it is in that sort of um, sense, uh, you know, they're, they're trying very much, it seems to me, in terms of propagandist literature to hook themselves to an audience that, and and that would be, you know, the vast majority of middle class Pakistanis um, who believe that, you know, who who are terrified of the Taliban and who want nothing to do with them and believe them to be quite barbaric. Um, And this is, this is, I think, particularly interesting because of sort of where it goes next, you know. Well, you mentioned her trip to the West. Initially, she's dazzled, but she came to feel differently about it. Why? What about it? You know, it's, it's um, I mean, you know, there's a, this essay goes on for pages and pages, but um, some of it is, you know, a, a description of working uh, within the medical context or in hospitals in the West and seeing sort of the hapless condition of people who are either old or who are depressed. And, and it's, um, you know, this isn't particularly new. A lot of jihadist literature tries to um, underscore kind of like the moral depravity of the West by showing um, either sort of the the... Uh, you know, psychological kind of uh, what they see as a wreckage of a very competitive and individualistic society. Um, and then, you know, also, of course, how uh, old people who, you know, can no longer take care of themselves are kind of left in a condition that, that they would not otherwise be left in a truly, uh, in, in their view, in a, in a Muslim society. Um, so, uh, so you have that. You have uh, that sort of per, uh, perspective. She, and, and, you know, even that is presented very cleverly. You know, first she talks about how, how dazzled she was, how happy she was. And then, you know, there's this kind of growing disenchantment uh, with the environment. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say if this was actually a story uh, or, or if she, because, I mean, you know, some of the very uh, kind of seminal jihadist literature, uh, like Sayyid Qutb, for example, um, you know, a lot of his work in political theory, Islamic political theory, is on this kind of idea of how it, how the West is morally depraved because of this kind of uh, decadence and, 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 and the wreckage that it leaves behind on people who are old or infirm or weak. Then a, a pious female Muslim teacher comes into her life. With what message and with what guidance? Yeah, so she, you know, she talks about how she um, is, you know, is in search. Uh, you know, she she's feeling... 
uh, sort of lost uh, spiritually and ethically. And so she's in search for of, of this teacher. Um, and uh, she finds this teacher who, I believe, first she, uh, who gives her lessons, if I'm correct, through Skype. Uh, which is how we're also talking right now, uh, but uh, but it it I thought that 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 bit is interesting because it does show you how uh, it, and it might not have been intentional, but it does show you how the mechanics of this these sort of exchanges or interactions are being carried out because this woman plays a very, very uh, crucial role in kind of making her more and more, uh, well, I mean, religiously orthodox on a superficial level, but really um, what I would say, uh, radicalizing her, Um, you know, and and it, it is kind of like the breaking point of the essay, which, you know, kind of marks a turn in the road from Dr. Khola being uh, this brilliant doctor, uh, you know, from Pakistan that goes in, goes abroad and, and gets all this specialized training to uh, Dr. Khola, the disenchanted, who is looking to sort of uh, be part of a larger cause. Tell us how she finally abandons her family, especially her father, the chief authority figure that the Taliban used to um, essentially enshrine. Right, and I think that 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 is why I found this essay um, just so interesting uh, and and worth writing about is because, um, you know, I had not... I've never, I mean, you know, Islamic State, of course, in their materials for a while now, uh, have been making appeals, trying to get women to join in, um, and trying to sort of recruit as many women as they can to come to the caliphate and all of that. And they've used a, a whole bunch of different techniques but the, and produced a lot of material in English to do that. Um, but the Taliban, uh, you know, as I, as I mentioned, had never not only ever gone that route, but that, you know, you can see the tension between uh, what are the traditional sort of orthodox interpretations of Islam, which uh, very much place the father and she, for an unmarried woman, and she is unmarried, is not is single um, as uh, you know the as you said the authority figure the guardian and the person that has the right to make um, decisions uh, to the extent that you know I've, I've written about recent court cases uh, in Pakistan uh, which um, you know if, if a if a woman uh, who is unmarried leaves and runs away uh, she can be forced to go back uh, to her father if he wants her back in the household because he is the legal guardian. And this is a woman over the age of majority. Like, so it's not, I'm not talking about like, you know, 12-year-old kids. I'm talking about like 20, 25-year-old women. Um, so uh, you can see that tension because in part of the essay, she spends a long, t- a, a lot of time talking about how you know, the father has a very, you know, esteemed place in Islam and, and is the guardian. But then, you know, at the end, like you said, there is a complete rebellion 
Um, and the reasons for the rebellion are, number one, her, pocket, her dad was in the military. So I think that in the Taliban's view, that's somehow considered um, an exceptional case so that, you know, if your father is... Um, in, in, in their perspective, so that's severely morally compromised um, and is keeping you from the right path, where, of course, the right path is interpreted as uh, joining up with the Taliban, um, then you have the right to, um, to rebel. And to the point where there's this very, very dramatic scene where... Um, you know, she is uh, going with her brother, I believe, uh, to the airport, and she sees her father, and they're on a, in a busy, crowded um, city street, and she sees her father uh, in a car uh, behind her, and he's, I think, he, you know, he's emotional, or he's crying, and even despite that, she doesn't turn around. Um, you know, she ends up actually I guess she's not going to the airport she's going to like a bus station or something and she you know meets up with another woman uh, who and then the two of them then are going to make what you know the hijra which is uh, sort of the which is the Arabic term for a migration a migration into the holy land into Khurasan, um which is the word she uses for you know going into Taliban territory but this is just absolutely a tremendous and very, very significant break because now you have this jihadist group essentially saying that, well, you may be a woman and you may be, you know, not equal to men, um, but in these cases you can sort of leave, um, you know, the legal guardianship uh, of a father. And then, you know, assumedly, if you can do that for a father, you can also do it for a husband or a brother. Um, and so it leaves open a completely new kind of uh, new kind of doctrine of rebellion, really, for uh, for women who may be frustrated, you know, with the roles that they have within family, the traditional uh, family in Pakistan or Afghanistan, um, and feel like they want a different kind of life um, and that's kind of the the sell you know is that if you don't want to listen to your father um, if you don't want to marry some guy that he's chosen for you um, and you'd rather you know go into this life I mean in one sense the father tells her that uh, you know the Taliban live pretty rough lives they like live in caves and stuff and um, you know you've grown up with a lot of luxuries and you you're not going to be able to do this and I, I thought that was that was very interesting uh, in both in terms of the Taliban's kind of self-awareness of how they come across to other people um, and also of course in a response because she says that no I'm, I'm ready for this I'm tough I can do it it's not that some Taliban leaders found a copy of Betty Friedan's old book, The Feminine Mystique. Talk about the actual competition for terror recruits that's behind this new rebellious role for women, uh, specifically a competition with ISIS. Um, you know, yeah, that, I mean, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, for, for as long as I've seen most Islamist groups, um, and, and, they, and, you know, in, in a sort of specific avowed sense, they would never um, 
kind of say that they were ever influenced by any kind of feminist or empowering ideas. Uh, but, you know, they cater to a population increasingly uh, that is very familiar with those ideas. So it's very, um, you know, it, it's interesting to see how they are being co-opted within this jihadist uh, discourse and you're 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 exactly on point. Is that um, I mean the one of the reasons that, that I'm I'm certain that kind of has motivated a, the issuing of a publication like this um, is competition with Daesh with the Islamic State, which uh, has made you know re- the recruitment of women um, from the start um, you know a, 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 a central kind of facet of, of their kind of jihadist identity, uh, much more cutting edge, you know, very active on social media, producing materials in various languages. Um, you know, if you pull up the, uh, the last issue of Islamic States magazine, uh, The Beak, uh, um, then you can see kind of the similarities in the graphics and the format and 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 hence the attempt to sort of appeal to um, an audience that's more internet savvy that's educated um, and 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 you you know you you see this other jihadist group now that the Taliban being so influenced by that um, in the sense that they feel like they have to do it too because otherwise they, um, you know, risk being sort of relegated to uh, the back benches of the jihadi, you know, <laughs> recruitment arena, um, and they don't want that. And so, um, you know, so they, they're trying to be more hip, more hip jihadis. And um, it's not a sentence that I ever expected to say um, <laughs> with, in relation to jihadists, but... It also shows that, you know, there are these very political um, conversations taking place um, and, and they're sort of reformulating Islamic, uh, you know, Islamist ideology in particular ways. I think the most um, interesting aspect of this that, you know, I hope people who read the article or who listen um, to the podcast um, can consider is that you know the there's a there's a huge tendency in the West to equivocate people who are uh, very traditionally orthodox as uh, at risk for you know kind of jihad- radicalization or 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 for falling for jihadist propaganda um, and one thing that this essay shows that um, you know is perhaps not so relevant within Muslim context, but extremely relevant within Western context, is the fact that the people who are traditional and orthodox are also the people that the jihadists are fighting. So, you know, this kind of novelty where you've now suddenly decided that women can be in the battlefield, they can say, Sia to their dad or their brother or whatever. Um, I mean, the you know classical uh, and very very orthodox Islamic uh, scholars would never ever uh, support you know support this. 
um, they take a very narrow view of 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 where um, you know women what women's roles are, and they don't think that an, women's roles can ever be on the battlefield. But you know, I mean, it's not in this magazine. But I remember, for instance. Um, in the Islamic State magazine, um, in, in, in their sort of appeal to women, they say, well, you know, you can, um, you can now be in the battlefield because the men have shirked their duty. So Muslim men have failed so much, so you, you, now you have to do this. I think it's fascinating that along with this more contemporary approach, there are long Islamic roots. You mentioned the Pakistani Taliban's Khola has the same name as a female fighter from the Prophet Muhammad's time. ISIS chose a heroine from the 7th century. Yep. Tell us a little about her story that they're using as, a, as an appealing model. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're exactly right in that you see both of these groups, um, ISIS being the, the, the first one, trying to create a genealogy of women warriors uh, as a way of sort of locating their, you know, their claim or, on, or their position on women warriors within Islamic history. So Nuseba bin Kaf, was a woman who fought in the battlefield in the seventh century who um and and that's you know the name that has been taken and now popularized again and again and again by isis as the basis for justification for women um in the battlefield which was never uh you know i mean until recently i mean of course you know islamic history scholars knew about it and uh women who study uh Muslim women in history had knew about it, but it was never um, it, it was never part of like a common parlance, uh, you know. And uh, nobody sort of said, "Okay, well now we're going to construct this." And I mean, I, I, to me, that it, this is chilling. You know what you are pointing out? It's exactly right. Like Nusaib bin Kaf. Paula is another one. Um, you know, there are other. Al Khansa was a female uh, poetess uh, who lived around that time and wrote, uh, you know, uh, poems of lament for her sons who were killed in battle. And and you know, the ISIS female brigade is called Al Khansa Brigade after her. Um, and so there is this attempt to create this. Uh, this genealogy of of Muslim women who have fought as a basis of creating um, a, an identity for the for the would be jihadist woman, um, and the reason why it's horrific is because you know as a Muslim feminist myself, um, you know I, I find it a, a bizarre and just very grotesque appropriation. Um, the women themselves ha- would never have supported a jihadist propaganda in which, you know, literally thousands and thousands of Muslim women and children, innocent Muslim women and children are being slaughtered and massacred. Um, so, but it is sort of uh, this kind of, um, you know, uh, this, this kind of reformist impulse coming from the extreme, you know, very far extreme of jihadist propaganda, which shows that, you know, and and it is, I mean, you know, at least this magazine 
the Taliban's magazine, um, at least from reading it, is, it seems very much kind of directed to uh, English-speaking uh, Pakistanis, middle-class Pakistanis, or around that milieu. And the idea is is that uh, you know you've got a society, at least in Pakistan, where change for women. I mean, it's coming, but it's extremely slow, and it feels very frustrating to be a young woman in Pakistan and um, have what I would call almost rights, you know, where you can get an education, uh, but, you know, as soon as you get married, you're supposed to forget about your education and just kind of, you know, acquiesce to a, a role that, you know, for for several generations, women who weren't educated did, and so um, and 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 those frustrations are mounting. And in some cases, uh, women are are breaking past them. They're in the workforce, but then if you get into the workforce, you discover that oh, well, um, you know, I'm being harassed by my boss, who's never had a woman work for him before. But where do I take that? I have nowhere to take that because there's, you know, there's a sexual harassment law on the statute books. It's an almost right situation, right? But there's no enforcement of it. There's no means to make that complaint. Um, and so you have literally millions of women in these situations. Uh, and, of course, you know, 99.999%, I mean, you know, are totally invulnerable to this kind of propaganda. But you know, these people are shooting for the uh, 5 or 10 or 25 in a country of some, you know, 200 million uh, that might read this and think, you know what, I don't want to marry the guy my dad has chosen. I don't want to sit at home and have children and just wait for him to come home every day. Um, I don't want to put up with my mother-in-law. I mean, on and on. Um, And you know, if they get even that tiny number, uh, that's more than they have now. And they can put them uh, to use in in similar sorts of ways as the Islamic State has, which is, you know, in recruitment and social media monitoring and propaganda creation, you know, making up more materials like, like this magazine. Uh, the new magazine also spotlights a contemporary model for the extremists it hopes to recruit or create. The wife of its current leader. Tell us her story. So after this kind of long first-person essay, there's an interview with the wife of a Taliban commander. Um, and what, one of the first things that immediately um, hits you, uh, and I'm going to read the title, it's Interview of the Respected Wife of Amir Tehreek Taliban Pakistan Mullah Fazullah Khurasani, may Allah protect him. Um, there is no mention uh, of the name of this woman that I could find. Uh, you know, she is mentioned as the wife of this guy. Um, you know, and, and so you have that, right? Which, I mean, to me, obviously strikes me as, as very, very misogynistic because, I mean, God, this woman, she has no identity other than uh, being um, being the the wife of this guy, um, but then you know when you start reading the interview, like for instance, they have a they have a question that says, uh, "Please share with us some memories of early days of your marriage with the Amir Sahib," um, and 
here you find a very, uh, you know, <laughs> what I thought was really surprising because she's talking about the Taliban commander and she's saying, Amir Sahib never got angry at me for not cooking or properly cleaning the house. On the other hand, he tried the best to do house chores. He used to do cooking, washing, and cleaning and never burdened me with his demands. Now, this is very, very <laughs> stunning because here you've got these, Taliban commanders, uh, you know, kind of very much uh, projecting the ultimate in in macho kind of a warrior image. Um, and then you've got in this woman's magazine, she's talking about, you know, what a like nice husband he is because he like cooks and cleans and does. And I mean, it, it's it's a not, like it's it's not something. Uh, it's not the kind of gender uh, roles that uh, I'm accustomed to seeing coming out. Um, you know, not forget Taliban, just just even general, uh, you know, depictions of the Afghan marriage or, um, you know, Taliban marriage. And once again, I mean, that's that's very, you know, slick and clever because what they're trying to say is if you come over, you know, single women like Dr. Khala, if you want to come over and live in our caves with us uh, and marry a Taliban uh, commander, uh, you, you know, we're not so bad be like help around the house and stuff. Um, <laughs> well, tell me, I mean, Khola is supposedly a doctor. One assumes that the Taliban might have use for her, her medical services uh, as an adjunct to the, right. to the fierce warfare that they're in. Right. Is it your understanding that the Taliban and ISIS give these women a thought of really being fighters? I mean, talking about suicide vests, talking about the Chechen widows who, who blew up planes. I mean, are they... Are they buying into the, a larger theory, uh, but are they also buying into the tactics and the strategy and the bloodshed? Of course they aren't going to give them anything in any way, I mean, that by the farthest stretch that you could consider empowering in any way. Um, you know, this is this is a blatant attempt at sort of wheedling in women who are, uh, for one reason or another, uh, impressionable or facing difficult circumstances or frustrations um, and don't have a place to go. Um, and so, no, I mean, they don't, I mean, you know, uh, the, like when women go to into, at least the accounts that I've read, women going into the Islamic State, territory, marrying Islamic State fighters, they stay home and then, you know, they're expected to do all the domestic work and then they, that fighter dies and then they're married off to a different fighter. And so it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's a sort of, um, I would say domestic and sexual slavery. Um, but I mean, you know, none of these groups are concerned with what happens after. You know, I mean, the point, their point is to try to get these women, um, you know, get them there. And so then uh, once they're there, like you said, I mean, you know, if it's a doctor, you could use her for, you know, she, she, she can she can provide her services uh, to other women or in some similar way. If she's like a IT person, she can like, you know, 
produce more materials like this magazine and disseminate them all over the internet and on and on. So, so there's uses, uh, of, of course, they can also be used as suicide bombers because yes, they can evade, uh, you know, certain kinds of security checks. And so there's a lot of ways that these groups can use them, but they're all, I mean, you know, a jihadist group is not much different from a cult. Uh, cults aren't necessarily interested in what happens to you once they've brainwashed you and got you there. Uh, they're interested in getting you there. Um, and so, yes, uh, the the chilling thing is how um, accurately they are are sort of identifying the crack in the landscape, you know, whether it's the disenchanted uh, person, the disenchanted immigrant in the West that feels stared at and feels excluded and doesn't doesn't feel like they belong, or whether it's like the girl in Pakistan who, you know, doesn't want to marry some old man her father's found for her and live with him, or and on and on. There's there's a lot of that, or or it's women who are frustrated with the um, with the rate of change, uh, you know, the promise of kind of revolutionary change. Um, even when it involves tremendous amounts of bloodshed of innocent people, uh, is going to be appealing to some women, just like it's appealing to some men. This new women's magazine may be the most public manifestation yet of the appeal for female recruits by ISIS and the Taliban. That should prompt security officials in Muslim countries and the West uh, to focus more scrutiny and preventive action on the female half of a population that they thought less likely to cause trouble. But this could also be just the response terror leaders are hoping for, you suggest. Say more about that, the, the possible backlash. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough to see. You know, when I have talked about this magazine within the Pakistani context or written about it, that is the part that I emphasize. I emphasize the fact that for too long in Muslim countries, Pakistan included, there's a sort of, um, you know, particularly uh, on the part of men and on the part of institutions, uh, there's a, a complete uh, disavowal or kind of lack of interest in, um, in, in giving women, uh, making women stakeholders. Uh, either within the political system or within, you know, within society as a whole. And the problem with that is that it leaves a, a huge a sort of uh, a huge population vulnerable um, to these kinds of ideologies. Uh, because if you feel like everything else has failed you, then... Uh, you know, I mean, then then you can be cajoled into sort of or brainwashed into into imagining this as as a way out, um, and and so you know, I mean, there's I think that there's a lot of talk everywhere in the world at this point, Pakistan included, but also in the West about the war on terror, winning the war on terror and sort of defeating the Taliban, defeating the Islamic State. But there's almost no talk about 
um, kind of how these groups are not just militarily focused. They're very much focused on creating uh, alternative historiography and alternative genealogy. And like, you know, we just talked about Nuseba and uh, Al-Khansa and, and all of these uh, iterations. Um, so there's a, there's a degree of intellectual work being done here that I feel is not being done at all on the other side in terms of countering violent extremism. Um, and, and that, to me, is the most alarming thing. And this magazine, is an, it's an iteration of that. It's an iteration of the fact that um, these groups, and, you know, I, I, I mean, it's, it was the Taliban, now it's the Islamic State, Five or ten years from now, it will be another iteration, some other group that gains ascendancy. Um, they're doing these sorts of uh, reformulations of what the family means and what it means to be a woman and what it means to have certain kinds of roles and the degree of independence you have in throwing them off. And that's not, there's no sort of, there's no counterbalance to that. Um, you know, but I was I was of, I was interested in your speculation that while there may not be any balance in countering the appeal, there may be more scrutiny, there may be re- more repression on women if women are seen as now uh, yeah. possibly secretly part of the yes. Taliban, and that this yes. repression itself may force more women into the hands of extremism. I think that the two extremes. The submissive, um, you know, and now the sinister have now been created. So if Muslim women were being seen as submissive, there is now, you know, with the emergence of this sort of material, uh, the tendency to see them as sinister. And of course, you're absolutely right, is that that in itself creates a loop of making them more vulnerable to this propaganda. Because if you're going to treat all, you know, say, I mean, women in headscarves or women in uh, full face whales um, as terrorists, then the ones who are not terrorists are going to say, okay, well, I mean, they already think I'm a terrorist, so I'm already this. Um, and and that is exactly right. And, and that too plays in the hands of this kind of propaganda because as you, you know, you can see in that essay that she writes is that first she's saying that she was just kind of like a, you know, she had this religious awakening. She became kind of a, almost like a reborn uh, Muslim and started to practice more things. And then once she started to sort of, um, put on these visible iterations, you know, like the veil and then the full face veil, she saw the discrimination that, uh, that, these, that, that, that women like this face, um, you know, and, and then that becomes part of the fuel for, uh, you know, her kind of political awakening. Um, and, and so it's, a, it's, it's, it's entirely correct to say that this, you know, we, everywhere, but particularly in the West, there is this thing of like, okay, oh, well, they're not submissive. They're actually all like sinister. And they're all about, you know, getting ready to strap suicide bombs under those veils. And and so um, we've got to either exclude them or subject them to all manner of checks and on and on and on, uh, which again creates 
uh, you know, that creates precisely the environment uh, that groups like this can, can benefit from. Rafi Zakaria, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Rafia Zakaria is a columnist for Dawn, largest English-language newspaper in Pakistan, as well as for The Baffler, Guardian Books, and other outlets. She's the author of The Upstairs Wife, An Intimate History of Pakistan, from Beacon Press in 2015, and Veil, just released by Bloomsbury. Her essay in the new WPJ Fall issue is headlined, Terror and the Family, How Jihadist Groups Are Redefining the Role of Women. Since we spoke about Taliban competition with ISIS for female recruits, ISIS made a bigger bid for international attention and relevance as it loses territory by claiming credit for last weekend's massacre in Las Vegas, which left at least 59 dead and 500 injured, the deadliest mass murder in U.S. history. But authorities quickly denied finding any evidence to support that. Last week, too, Human Rights Watch reported that Iran was recruiting Afghan refugees as young as 14 to fight and die for the Assad regime in Syria. Under international law, recruiting children under 15 for hostilities is a war crime. Also featured in the new WPJ Fall issue, you'll find articles about how immigration rules in the UK put a special price on family unification, about rape and priestly power in Nicaragua, and about the Trump effect on gay rights in Liberia. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on the work of Muslim mothers to fight terrorist recruitment in their families. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Interim editor, Jessica Laudis. Managing editor, Laurel Jerombeck. Podcast producer, Isabel Vasquez. I'm David Alpern.